0: Well, welcome to the hills, to everybody who's joining us live at one of our campuses, and for those who are joining online or even maybe later on podcast. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. So over these last few weeks, we have been tracing the story ...of God's people in Egypt under slavery. And as we follow the Exodus story, we've gone from looking at a, a large group of people... ...to following one specific individual, Moses. And we are about to read something that is very dangerous for a group of Christians. And that is an overfamiliar story, at least in our minds. And I have been praying that when we read through this, the Holy Spirit would give us fresh eyes... And ears for what truth can be found in this famous scene. So having said that, I'm going to read starting in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Continuing in verse 10, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is God's word. In the larger sweep of the story of Israel, this, the main point of this scene is that God, who chose the Hebrew people for his own, remembers his covenant promises to them. And so he announces that he's going to rescue them from slavery and take them to a new home that he promises them, this land flowing with milk and honey that we often call the promised land. And as he announces that he's going to save them, he reveals that the human agent he's going to use to do this is a man named Moses. This encounter with God, this famous scene between Moses and God in the burning bush is actually much longer than the excerpt that we've read. This is why over actually this week and next week we're going to kind of part one and part two, the dialogue that Moses and God have. I'm going to do part one. Next week, Rick is going to help unpack part two for us. And here's why we're going to spend two weeks on this encounter in a series that really is more of an overview of the Exodus story. Before being sent back to Egypt to become a deliverer, Moses needed to be delivered from some things first. Now think about what we just found Moses doing at the beginning of chapter three. Last time we saw him, he had fled from Egypt. He's living this life in uh, in a foreign land among a Midianite people. He's found a wife. He's working for his father-in-law, and his occupation is that of shepherd. The job of shepherding came to mind for me earlier this month, not because of something in Scripture, but because a video went viral. Uh, it was from, it looked like maybe the other side of the world, where all of a sudden there was this video of a sheep that was stuck in some kind of trench. I don't know how many of you have seen this. Check out this video. You've got this, this farmhand or shepherd, somebody, who is trying desperately to set this sheep free and, and help get it out of this trench. And with great effort, they succeed. And initially, the sheep seemed so happy. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know if Moses ever dealt with that level of sheep stupidity. I would imagine that he probably did. But, man, and we watch that, and, like, the first question that comes to mind for me is, like, what was the point of even trying to help, right? And really, that little scene is kind of a microcosm of some of the human experience, is it not? The kinds of moments where in a place of struggle or bondage, we we suddenly find some kind of relief and freedom only to find ourselves leaping right back into the next version of it. And it causes us to ask the exact same question. What was the point? The questions get deeper. Why, Why am I even here? Does any of this matter in the grand scheme of things? What's the reason I'm alive? And for centuries... Humans have tried to answer those questions. As individuals, for so many of us, we, we try to, to get ourselves out, out, of, out of one unsatisfactory or even binding situation by, by trying to find what's the thing we're going to live for. And for some of us, we, we start making that about, about a goal that we have, a, a career of some kind that's going to give us worth or validation, or maybe instead it's going to be a, a relationship that will finally fulfill, or maybe some lived experiences that will thrill, but as soon as we get into those, we find ourselves right back in the ditch because, number one, often what we imagine is so different than what we actually experience, or even worse, what we get, what we've been chasing after—we finally get a hold of it, and it's—it's it's everything we hoped it would be. Maybe it's even better than that, and yet still, somewhere inside us, there is a lurking dissatisfaction that makes us ask, "Man, if this is all there is, what's the point?" And so we go chasing. But maybe, maybe instead of looking at it from an individual level, you can zoom out and look at the course of all of human history and trace human thought and philosophy and ethics and all the people who ask the big questions that often kind of make us roll our eyes, if we're honest. But in that journey, you can basically find people over and over and over again living out that same experience of dealing with the unsatisfactory nature, the questions that we can't answer and we feel like we're in the ditch and then we we get out with some theory that we think will help us and then all of a sudden we start to realize that theory has cracks or when we try to live it out, it's really not what we thought it would be and boom, we're right back in the ditch asking what is the point? In the words of theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, every time I find the meaning of life, they change it. And so as we search... There's different people who have written about this. From a modern standpoint, one of the most famous works is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who happens to be a survivor of concentration camps in World War II. The first part of the book is Frankl kind of doing a memoir of his experiences, and the second part is him continuing to, to uh, explain logotherapy, this idea he has about what drives us. In his introduction, briefly, Frankl talks about kind of three different schools of thought about what drives us in this search. Now, the list is not exhaustive, but I still think it's helpful. He's painting with a broad brush, but he talks about that, that we're in different, different schools of thought. We are driven by the will to pleasure or the will to power or the will to meaning. And that each of these can end up sending us in the ditch. So with the will to pleasure, like in philosophy, the the term for this would be hedonism. In my grandmother's vernacular, the term that she would use would be, this is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But the point in the will to pleasure is to experience as much as possible. And whatever it is you're doing, make sure you go overboard with it, okay? If it can be done to excess, go for it. And the basic premise of the will to pleasure is that, man, if, if this life, if this is all there is then we might as well feel as good as we can as often as possible for as long as we're alive. And with the will to pleasure, we can end up in the ditch when we start pursuing pleasure. And number one, we look around and there are so many options that promise us pleasure that we're actually paralyzed by the number of choices. The, uh, the, the modern kind of uh, uh, way of talking about this would be FOMO, the fear of missing out. And some of us had that experience where we start looking online and we see all these different options and all of a sudden, I don't know if this has been you before, but you've spent 45 minutes researching the best taco place in your city and then all of a sudden you look up and you realize, I haven't even gone somewhere yet. Paralyzed by it. Or the other way the will to pleasure can send us into the ditch is that when we finally get what we think we wanted, that we find ourselves in an endless chase for the next high, a slave to our own desires. And so others have decided, no, you know what, the real will is not the will to pleasure, but it's the will to power. And the will to power is kind of an existential king of the hill battle. The will to power has its own golden rule. You've heard it before. He who has the gold makes the rules. The driving force of the will to power is, is, man, it's it's agency and achievement. Go, do what you can, achieve as much as you can, gain as much as you can. And yet the shadow side of the will to power is really that it becomes about competition and even control or domination. The will to power has led to wars waged, kings crowned, and land claimed, rightfully or not. With the will to power... We end up in the ditch when, number one, we come across someone who's able to overpower us and beat us at our own game. Or number two, we manage to stay on top, and instead of feeling satisfied, we are driven by fear and paranoia to try and keep what we have, so much so that it robs us of the ability to enjoy it in the first place. And this is why Viktor Frankl proposes, instead of the will to pleasure or the will to power that so often make us ask, what's the point? He says, we're driven by that question itself, the will to meaning. And so how do you, how do you end up with something that's meaningful in a life that makes us ask over and over again, what's the point when we feel stuck in the ditch? Well, one option, perhaps the most common, is to inherit A meaning. Accept and embrace whatever worldview or religion or value system is handed down to you. It's part of how we end up with traditional values or any kind of legacy or lineage of a religion or a way to look at the world. And so while this has happened for generations and generations, there's also oftentimes, and we see it a lot today, when people would rather, instead of inheriting a meaning, they'd rather create their own meaning. You can see this a little bit in, uh, in the song Bigger from Beyonce that came out last year where she sings about that question in your soul. Gets a little bit existential and her lyrics say to quote, take the pen and rewrite it. This is a individualistic, don't let anybody tell you who you are, don't let anybody box you in, don't let anybody put limits on you, but instead you go create your meaning, you go do what you want, you go, and, and, and again with this we can, we can sometimes end up in the ditch when we have competing versions of what counts as meaningful. And so there's others who acknowledging the will to meaning and the, fa- and the fact that we keep asking these questions. Some would say in your existential crisis when you're stuck in the ditch, Just embrace the meaninglessness of it all. In the words of secularist thinker Richard John Newhouse, quote, make it up as you go along. Take ironic delight in the truth that there is no truth. There is no home that answers to our homelessness, end quote. Cheery stuff, right? From a biblical standpoint, this would be like the teacher in Ecclesiastes who says, vanity of vanities, Everything is vanity. Basically go, hey, you know, life's, life's the ditch, and then you die. That is what it is, okay? But with the will to meaning, one of the biggest things that sends us into the ditch is that we settle for a meaning that holds a measure of truth in this life. But it lacks the source of life itself and truth itself. So what do I mean by that? This gets us back to Exodus 3. When Moses meets God in the burning bush, he first gets kind of a general introduction to God. Did you notice? Moses initially, it's kind of funny when you read those first couple verses, he, he sees a bush that's burning but is not burning up and the fire is just kind of continuing. And he talks, which I don't know about you, but when you're surprised about something, do you find yourself talking out loud? Because all by himself, out with the sheep in the wilderness, he's like, oh, what's that? I guess I'll go check it out. He gets over there. He's not freaking out yet. Then he hears a voice from this burning bush call his name. And he's like, here I am, not freaking out yet. And then God begins to introduce himself. And says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And only then does Moses realize he's having a holy encounter with the God of his his fathers, so much so that that's when he finally freaks out. He's like, oh no. He doesn't want to look at God. And yet a few verses later, in this back and forth between Moses and the Lord, Moses presses in, and even though he's had an introduction to God of realizing he's talking to the God of his people, he presses in and asks for God's name. What's happening here? Names in biblical times were about more than what someone called you. Names spoke to the very essence and nature of whoever was bearing that name. And so... When Moses asks, he's trying to get some sense of the nature or essence of, who is this God of my fathers? I don't just want to inherit a meaning, but I want to know, who are you, God? It's interesting that first Moses asks, I mean, who, who, who am I that I would be able to do this? And then when God responds saying, I'll be with you now, Moses is asking, yeah, but who are you? As the early church father Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And for us to be wrestling with this existential crisis of who are we and what's the point until we turn and recognize who the God inside the burning bush is, we will not have good answers for ourselves. And so God answers with kind of a non-answer. I am who I am. This is both profound and puzzling, I mean, it's, 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 in a way, it's like God is saying, Moses, when you ask this, you're trying to put me in a box already. You want to sum up my essence and my nature, but it can't be done with just one name. I am who I am. I'm transcending your categories. Here's, here's another way to think about it. Like names, even in biblical times and to today, names by themselves derive their meaning from some concept, some thing, some person outside themselves, names have meaning because they have some reference point. Like, think about this: like uh, the uh, the apostle Peter is given given that name. He, he was Simon, then he's called Peter, which means rock. You need the concept of a rock for the name Peter to have significance about being a foundation for the church. Abram which means father, is given a new name, Abraham, which means father of many nations. And you need the concept of fatherhood and people groups in order for that name to have any meaning. And so when God answers, and he says, I am who I am, it's as if God is saying to Moses and to us, I need no reference point. In fact, I am the eternal reference point. Everything will refer back to me. Everything will find its source in me. If you're taking notes, you can write it like this. I am is the source of all meaning. If we're seeking after what is the point, part of what is revealed in Exodus 3 is that the the point will only be found in the eternal divine reference point of I am, the God who is. And so when we think about God as the source of all meaning and we look back at this answer, I am who I am, maybe there is something revealed about God in this. His eternal existence and divine nature. Because the name I am who I am, maybe in the footnotes of your Bible you may see that it could be translated I will be that I will be. Because this name slash non-name derives itself from the Hebrew verb to be. Part of what's revealed is that God is pure being. Theologians refer to this, this is where words begin to fail us and it gets mushy. Theologians refer to this as the is-ness of God because God is. I heard Dr. Robert Smith, this preaching legend at a conference several years ago, try to kind of unpack this. And, and part of what he said was that one way to sort of paraphrase God's name using the is-ness of God is this. I was is, I am is, and I will be is. And in his unique way, Dr. Smith added, Now that's bad grammar, but it's good theology. God is. He is uncreated, never-ending, ever-present, all-encompassing, fully transcendent, like a fire that burns but does not burn up like a flame that gives off light and heat but never consumes itself. God is past, present, and future existence, never ending and ever beginning. This is the God who calls himself I Am, who reveals his transcendent and yet very present nature to Moses and to us. And from this point on, as God begins to continue to talk, we see in the verses that follow something that gets lost in our English translation. He goes from, I am who I am, to saying, tell them I am has sent me to you. And then says, and also tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is that, Lord? When you look at that, if you've got your Bible, like, look back look back at, at, the, at that. It should be in all caps, it might even have some kind of a note next to it. Because this is the first place that a name for God that's very well known, it's actually a truncated version of I am who I am, arrives in the Scriptures. And that name is Yahweh. Now we, we think that's how it's pronounced. No one exactly knows. The Jews have, have had such reverence for this name for so long that even the scribes don't write it out, but write only the consonants Y H W H. And any time in the rest of Scripture when you see the Lord in all caps, they're translating Yahweh. Part of what's confusing for us is that we, we hear that, the Lord, and we think it's a title. But there's a Hebrew word for the title, Lord, and that's Adonai. And often you'll see that translated as Lord, and it's lowercase. And so part of what's happening here is that God is separating himself and his nature from any title or category, or office that we put him in, because inevitably, those are in relationship to us. Think about it. You've got, you've got the idea of Lord or Master, who those automatically need servants in order to be that title. A creator needs something created A sustainer needs something to sustain. A provider needs someone to provide for. A counselor needs someone to counsel. These are all good and fine and even biblical ways to talk about God, but inadvertently they make God about us. When God reveals himself, it is not in reference point to you or to me or even to creation. It is only in his transcendent existence. But again, the challenge for us is now we're like, okay, but that man, it's like kind of weird. Like, so are we just talking about like God is some sort of like, he's just a higher power? In 2018, the Washington Post reported on a Pew Research study, which found that 72% of the, of religious unaffiliated people, people who would describe themselves as having no religious affiliation, maybe they're agnostic or skeptical or whatever, that 72% of that category would still say, I believe in a, Higher power of some kind. And I thought that was kind of encouraging at first, and then I until I came across something that theologian R. C. Sproul said about the uh, belief in a higher power. He said it's not hard to believe in or even concede the existence of a higher power, because a higher power is one impersonal and two amoral. How can we derive any meaning? What's the point of Of a higher power, a vague higher power doesn't care about you or see you. And more importantly, for the independent skeptic, even if that higher power exists, that higher power is not gonna make any claim on your life. You can go living your life exactly how you want, whether or not that higher power exists. Okay, pause for a second. Part of what we have to face is the temptation in the Christian faith to treat God like a higher power. If you treat Yahweh like a generic higher power, that is a great way to have a terrible experience with the Christian faith and find yourself in the ditch with everybody else. Because if you treat God like he is an impersonal, amoral, divine force out there who makes no claim on your life and doesn't care about your morality or your mortality, you are doing some kind of modern American lukewarm weekend social club religion, but you are not engaged in the Christian faith. It's easy to inadvertently end up coming in and treating God like a concept. But God is not a concept. God is a person. A personal entity revealed in the burning bush. And God is calling your name the way he's calling, the way he called to Moses. God wants a personal relationship with each one of us to give us the point. But we only find the point in him. Part of what I am delivers us from is I am delivers us from abstract meaning to personal encounter. That's what Moses experienced that began to change the course of his life and continue emphasizing what is unique for the Jewish faith and the Judeo Christian faith. We're not talking about God as a concept or a title. We're a vague, impersonal, but a personal being. And inadvertently, our attempts to create meaning or interpret meaning out in the world when we separate ourselves from the I am means that we can end up really out of alignment with what we say we believe. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this. So in 1990, a, a picture was taken of Earth from about 3.7 billion miles away. Here's the photo known as the pale blue dot. And in his book under the same title, physicist Carl Sagan commented with these words, and I want you to look at this picture while you hear these words. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. On it everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who has ever whoever was lived out their lives. Our posturings, our self-imagined importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Here's how he concludes. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. I really like Sagan's conclusion, but I really disagree with his premise, and I think it's out of alignment. Now, I don't, I, to be fair to Carl Sagan, he's not trying to make a sophisticated, logical argument when he says, hey, there's an abyss of nothingness, and nothing matters, and we're small and insignificant, so be nice to each other. He's making an emotional appeal. But the problem is there's lots of people I've talked to who are skeptics, who are, who are agnostics, or who are even atheists who use this same logic as a moral imperative to try and have ethics and morality and kindness and compassion and self-sacrifice and basically, without realizing it, often trying to take their version of the meat of the Christian, Judeo-Christian faith and spit out the bones. They want a Jesus-like ethic without Jesus. The problem is, when you say at bedrock, nothing matters, this is all there is, and it's whatever we're going to try and make of it, so everybody be nice, well, now you've just got an introductory clause, life's too short, this is too scarce, and you can put anything right there and try and validate yourself. Life's too short, this is too scarce, so get what you can while you can and forget everybody else. Life's too short. This is too scarce. So have as much fun as you can while you can, and don't worry about the consequences. Life's too short. It's too scarce. So be nice to everybody. It'll be okay. Like, you've you've just taken something. You could put anything after that as your moral imperative for how to live. And part of what I've said to to friends who are are wrestling with this is, look, when, when you say that every day, when you say at bedrock, this is what I believe, and there isn't really a point, and this is all there is, but then you live each day like it matters. Do you see that misalignment? Because as a Christian, I'll try and own my lack of alignment. I believe this matters. I believe God, God and his will are best. I believe he's the reference point for my life. And when I live outside of that, I call that misalignment sin. And the Christian... Response to sin is not to wink at it or to say, ah, no big deal. It's to repent for it and say, Lord, help me to go a better way. Thank you for rescuing me from that sin. The Christian faith, for all the ways that a bunch of us are hypocrites, myself included, we're trying to own that consistency and find the grace of God in it. And I'm just asking any skeptic who works through what they're thinking about to own their inconsistency. And these questions make us uncomfortable, it's hard. And that's why so often the, the alternative is to just go, man, just, just let's not talk about this. Forget it. Just change the subject. You can see this in a 2009 bus ad campaign in London. This was plastered on 800 buses around the city from uh, a, a group, uh, atheist collective, that said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying about it, and en- or stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that's a pretty good strategy, Right? I found that, that uh, ad in a, a book called Searching for Enough. And in it, the, the author, Tyler Staten, says, that'll get you through most days until, quote, pain interrupts our plans. He writes that, quote, when marriage ends in divorce, when loved ones are, faced, are forced to grieve someone they've lost, when the promising career path ends in termination, or even just when weekend plans are traded for idle loneliness. Enjoy your life isn't a fun distraction. It's insultingly cheap and existentially impossible. Maybe, now to be fair to that group, I don't think they would have run that ad last year. And in biblical terms, maybe that would work on Moses, who's got a steady job and kind of a a routine for his life, but that wouldn't play with the Israelites back in Egypt in slavery. And because pain is unavoidable, because evil is real, because oppression is ongoing, because we all sin and are under the curse of sin, because we will inevitably plunge ourselves headlong into another ditch, that is why I am has come to rescue us. Look, look back at the verbs God uses for what he is going to do, because this is not about Moses. Moses. In, in Exodus 3, he, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out for the, because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. This is a picture of our faith. In God and in Jesus, because there is a God who sees, who watches. There is a God who hears our cries. There's a God who actually says, I am concerned. He cares for us. And so I have come down. God took on flesh, came to this world to rescue and save us from what feels like a pointless existence, to realize He is the point. And that's why when Jesus even said, talking to some religious leaders, trying to help them understand this, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, say these words with me, I am. This is the God of the burning bush who then came to be the God who would take up a cross on Calvary to rescue us and then like God in Exodus 3 to promise us, I will be with you. The source of meaning, the source of life, will now make residence in every person who calls on his name and experiences his saving grace of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. God promises his presence. His isness is in you if you are a follower of Jesus. And so, for all the ways that we've ended up in the ditch before, the God of Exodus 3, the God of the burning bush is calling your name and my name and saying, I am the source of all pleasure. I am the one who holds all power. And so I am the one who will give you all meaning if you find it in me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for how you have Seen, our state you have heard our cries for help that you are concerned and you care and thank you that you have come down to rescue us Lord I ask that for for those who have never reckoned with this idea that there is a God who's more than a concept but is a personal being would you be drawing them in right now help them to hear you encounter you You're so much more than a message inside of a sermon. Help them experience your reality. And God, for those of us who at times have treated you like a generic higher power, would you help us to confess it, repent of it, and find real meaning in you? Lead us, God, we pray, in your holy name, the name of Jesus, amen.